have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. I want to insulate uh, my crawl space. And what's your opinion on putting plastic uh, uh, on the dirt floor? Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor, and now Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Uh, first statement I would make about crawl spaces under modern-day construction, you're going to put plastic down if you want to get an inspection. It's actually There's a section in the building code that requires that today. So I strongly encourage it, even before it was in the building code. This is something that I have always done. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Each weekend at this time, Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, is right here answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. I'm Jim Britton. Thanks for joining us again this weekend. Don't forget, if you have a question for Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And also... Uh, you can uh, friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you'd like to email a question to us, forward it to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Several shows back, we talked a little bit about maintenance on your home heating and cooling system, and we discussed briefly heating and cooling filters. And I promised you I'd be back in another show to talk about them in more detail. And that's where we're going to head for the next few minutes today. Because so many of you come to me and say, you know, what is the right type? I dealt with that just here in the last week or two. What's the right type air conditioning filter for me to have? And most of us are price point oriented. So if we can go buy a package of three for five dollars, we're going to throw those in there and say, we got a filter in. That's great. You know, really the basic air conditioning filters that are in the market are the panel filters. And that's because they tend to be a square or rectangular and they're a flat panel. What they are doing, though, is largely protecting your air conditioning equipment. They're preventing the largest dust particles from clogging up the ductwork, from getting on the coils, from getting on the fan itself, and the moving parts within your system. And that's great. It's designed to do that, and manufacturers understand you need that level of protection. But what these panel filters that are typically the cheap throwaway filters don't do, they don't enhance the air quality. They simply protect the equipment, which is the basic function. And so many folks today have allergy issues or they just want to eliminate some of the additional dust, if you will, within the house and reduce some of that interior maintenance. And these other filters that you start looking at and say, well, I can't imagine myself paying $9 for a filter or I can't imagine paying $100 for this washable plastic-looking filter here. There really is some science behind those. And many of you, when I get through with this, will say maybe it's worth a consideration. In my professional opinion, it is. I use the higher-end filters because they serve a very good purpose. As I said to begin with, the panel filters typically are the cheapest throwaway filters, and they're only protecting the equipment. They're not enhancing the air quality. Let's step up from that. And many of you have heard the term electrostatic filter. Now, that is a washable filter. It's not one that you tend to throw away. It's going to have some type of a plastic filter media usually in that. But the electrostatic filters use static electricity to remove particles from the air. And they work along the lines just as you move across that car seat in the wintertime. Many times you touch something metal when you get out. There's this huge bolt of electricity that comes out your fingertips or your hands. That's static electricity. The electrostatic filters work along the same principle. That They have multiple layers in them, and generally in the first two or three layers, as air and particles move across those, uh, the, the, the membrane, they are charged, and as they go onto the back side, 
because they're dealing with both a positive and negative charge, they are collected in that system. So there's no electricity. The fact that it says electrostatic, this is all natural. This is just air movement, like you sliding across that car seat or that piece of furniture and getting zapped when you touch something metal. The principle is the same. And again, these are typically reusable and washable filters, but they cost a fair amount of money. Now, they do a good job because they pull much more dust out of the air, and they will help keep the house a bit cleaner, and you're also saving money in the long run because you're not buying $5 throwaway filters every time you turn around. Now, there's another type of filter that will be similar in terms of efficiency of pulling added dust out of the air, uh, pet dander, some of those type things, and that's a pleated filter. And that's because you actually have more filter media for the same area. So if you've got a return air filter that's 16 inches by 16 inches, instead of having that square inch area, this pleated filter may have double that because it uses sort of a zigzag shape within it. And I think most of you have probably seen those. They also tend to be throwaway filters, so you're paying eight, nine, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty dollars or more every time you need to replace it. And if you're in an environment where you have a lot of dust and dirt, you may be replacing these every thirty to ninety days and other less dirty environments maybe as much as six months. So that can be pretty pricey after a while. But these pleated filters, again, gain their efficiency because of the increased surface area. So they are worth the added money, at least in my opinion, because they do a better job of filtering the air. But what they're not doing, they still are not enhancing your air quality if you happen to be an individual or have those in your house that have issues with allergies or uh, you're subject to problems sneezing, if you will, from pet dander or hair or smoke or things along those lines. And we're going to get to that quickly in just a moment. There's one other type that's not so common these days. Some of you may have them, these washable filters. They were great on the market many years ago, the foam washable filters, I should say. They're not really highly recommended, especially for the main whole house systems these days. Uh, I would suggest you look at some of the others. Uh, They're used today most commonly for window air conditioning units. I want to take you to the next step, though, and that's the HEPA filter, H-E-P-A, because that's a name a lot of us recognize. We're seeing vacuum cleaners and other products, air purifiers, sold with HEPA filters. And that's because they do a much better job. They'll pull a 99.97% of dust, mold, and other allergens and so forth out of the air. And that's great because that gives us the kind of interior home environment that we're going to experience in places such as hospitals and food manufacturing facilities and many office complexes today where we have very pure air that takes a lot of the allergy, uh, uh, the, the things out of the air that create real problems for those of us with allergies. So I want you to think a little bit about these types of filters. The HEPA filters are going to set you back quite a few dollars, but think about what they do. And not everybody needs a HEPA filter. Not everybody needs any more than just a basic $3 install yourself and throw away filter every few months to keep the AC unit clean. But if you happen to be in that environment and you're sensitive, you want to consider moving up, spend some money on these washable one-time filters, and do yourself a favor. Now, if you really want to spend a few dollars and you want probably one of the best systems I know of in the marketplace, and there are several manufacturers producing comparable systems, I'm going to talk about one I have personal experience with, and that's produced by Train. It's called the Train Clean Effects Air Cleaner. This removes 99.98% of allergens from the air. This will remove even smoke, in most cases smoke, bacteria, which is something a lot of these other filters don't do, and so many other items, cooking grease, uh, lint, fungus, mildew, dust mites from the air. It is extremely fine, and this is a three-stage filter that goes in a whole house system. I can tell you I've used these. I've installed these in commercial and residential structures, have them in my own home, extremely pleased with this. 
So there are so many filtration levels when you start to think about it that when you walk into a big box or hardware store, it just blows your mind. You're saying, what do I need? I just came in for a filter. Well, folks, think about how you live in the house and what you're trying to do with your air quality, and then you'll make an informed decision. And one little hint, if you're going out looking for filters, make sure you know what size filter you need. Uh, Isn't that a great starting point? Because when you start looking at it, it's it's like, I just wanted a can of beans, and there are 45 cans of beans on the grocery store shelf. I just want a filter. Yeah. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor, we'll bring you our App of the Week. It's the DYI guide for every type of screw, bolt, and nut. That should take care of a lot of things. That'll help all of us out. And also, on our Universal Living segment, we're going to talk about fire safety for the hearing impaired. That's all coming up this hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. He is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or you can email your questions to our website. That is KenTheContractor.com. We're going to tackle a couple of emails, Ken. First of all, one that comes to us from Overland Park, Kansas, and this one comes from Bobby. Bobby says we live in an area that gets many tornadoes during a year compared to other parts of the country. He said, my concern might not be important to others, but I want to know the best way I can build a tornado-proof room in my existing home. I said, I think it would be easier if I had a basement, but I don't. I have a two-story house with a garage, and the house is on a slab. Do I just reinforce walls in a closet or bathroom with plywood or what? I said, I enjoy your show and hope you can point me in the right direction. Well, Bobby, we appreciate you listening to the show. And, you know, you have several options, but I want to tell you and others that are in tornado-prone areas that no matter what you do to reinforce a room, it's certainly better than doing nothing at all. So whether it's plywood on walls, you've got an unfinished area in a garage uh, that's a fairly tight area, a concise area, a closet, it certainly can help. But the best thing is always to, to seek proper shelter if you're in a tornado. If you have a, a safe house or a place within your community that you can go to that's designed for a large number of people, that would be better than just sitting in your home with absolutely no protection at all. But there are companies throughout the country that are producing what would be called simply safe rooms that are pre-manufactured. And, Bobby, in your case, you've told me a a little clue here that helps me point you in this direction, that you have a garage. And the fact that you have a garage, that tells me you're going to have a a concrete slab. That also tells me uh, that you are – it's an area outside the home, but it's at least adjacent to the home, or it could be freestanding. But you have the opportunity to put one of these small rooms in place. Now, some of these are extremely small, depending on the number of people they're designed for. They are totally prefabricated. They are made of steel. They are designed to withstand even an F5 tornado as far as the structure goes, with debris falling on top of them, the high speed of two-by material being driven into the walls and so forth. That includes the door that's in them. But the key to those will be the foundation that they're on because they have to be bolted to something that's quite secure. That's why having a garage slab in your case would be very important. It would be more cost-effective for you to purchase one of these prefab rooms, have it brought in, set in the garage, have it bolted to the floor. Maybe that the floor is not thick enough. They would take out a small section of that, pour a deeper foundation, bolt the structure to it, put power into it. At least you have everything you need uh, for a safe environment for the tornadoes that may, over time, impact you in your particular area. Hopefully not, but that is something, a concern I think anybody has today that lives in a prone location. Now, for those, for you and others that may not want to buy a full room, 
the answer to your question would be that there are things you can do in constructing a relatively safe room. You can not only go to websites, but also you can look at federal government sites that will tell you a little more about that. But for the money, that's going to be somewhat difficult, and it impacts the entire house. Changing your foundation, your electrical, it may stop you from using certain areas of the home. That's the reason I like these safe rooms, and I suggest you check them out. There's so many out there, a lot of different price points. They're designed from two people, I think, to about ten people, and they're very easy to deal with. Now, you're very familiar with this from the point of view of not tornadoes, but hurricanes, from a lot of the work you've done down in Florida. I know in Florida, they've boosted the specifications to try to make homes uh, a little safer down there in Florida, particularly after Andrew and some of the other situations that they dealt with. But it's just not feasible, is it, because the tornado alley is just so huge. Well, tornadoes affect us all over the country almost. Hurricanes certainly don't as much. You may have some uh, residual effect flooding and so forth in the, the middle part of the country, but the direct winds, when you look at coastal regions where the, what they've really addressed have to do with storm surge and raising those finished floors above the mean high tide storm surge area and protecting the structure so it doesn't wash away by using blowout walls. So they've done some things there. But the things we can do for tornado applications vary from one part of the region to the other in terms of what we want to do. But we have so many options today. These safe rooms are a great start. Now, if you're building a new house or you're putting on an addition, that is the perfect time, though, to actually build you a safe room into the house. Very easy to do at that point, and you'll find it will add less money than buying one of these freestanding structures ready to bolt in place. Got another email. This one is from Nora. She's in Elkhart, Indiana. All right, and she has a home that she's looking at that was constructed in the 1940s. And she said, I'm in the process of buying this home. My soon-to-be neighbor tells me the exterior siding is asbestos. Do I need to be concerned or just pass on buying this house? Are there health issues, or will I have difficulty selling the house in the future? Well, Dora, a house built in the 1940s and 50s, and even some into the early 60s, not uncommon to see products that were used for exterior siding that contains asbestos. And what we've determined since asbestos became the big issue that it did back in the 70s is that not all products are as dangerous as others. Now, asbestos by itself can cause severe health issues and can actually kill people based on the exposure they have to those. But when we look at exterior siding and we talk about something that's uh, that's solid, it's in contact, it's not like pipe insulation that may tend to be in some of these around these old boiler pipes or furnace pipes, there is a friable and a non-friable material. It has nothing to do with cooking. It has to do with the small fibers and their ability to be airborne or whether they're encapsulated in solid materials. And the EPA regulates this. My comment to you would be, Not seeing this, simply reading your email, is that you contact a home inspector before you go to closing. And if you haven't signed the contract yet, if you're just looking at this home, is that you put that in your contract as a qualification, that you want a home inspection and you want an environmental inspection of the home. You want to be sure there are no other issues, because I would be more concerned about insulation on old pipes perhaps in your crawl space, your basement, your attic, wherever your heater happens to be, than I would be about the siding on the exterior. And that holds true for everybody. If you get a clean bill of help with an inspection at this point, you can rest assured that you shouldn't have any issues selling the home in the future, and you know that you're living in a safe, comfortable environment as far as your indoor air quality. But it's good that you raised the question. I'm glad your neighbor said something to you if you're not really up to speed on this. Asbestos isn't something for us to fool with. It's like lead-based paint and so many other things. There are health issues that can be associated with those, but there are ways to deal with them to treat all of these things properly and not have any health issues at all and just go on about life. So we appreciate your email, Nora, and good luck to you with your purchase and your house hunting.
I know some people may be somewhat surprised when they listen to this. Um, I think a lot of folks assume that two of the things that you talked about, lead-based paints and asbestos, had been pretty well wiped out. Well, they were so commonly used for so many years that it's not uncommon to encounter a situation just like she's dealing with. And that's because we have far more older structures, homes around this country, than we do newer ones. In fact, I think in a statistic that I put on the air here not long ago, only about 25% of the homes nationwide have been built in the last 30 years, and that's after these products were outlawed. So that says three-quarters of the homes across the country are likely to have some amount of asbestos and lead-based paint in some element within that house. Well, and you can see that that's why it can be such a challenge at times uh, when we deal with some of the questions that you deal with. We have so many folks out there looking to remodel or to upgrade their homes because in many cases these properties were built before a lot of the stuff that we now look for as uh, the things we want in our home were even offered. Well, we didn't know any better. It was a good product of the day. It was the latest technology of the day. We were not aware there were health issues that could be associated with it long term. We are now, and gradually as we see houses and properties changing hands and people doing what I just suggested, getting home inspections, finding out how you encapsulate or fix a problem, the EPA has said that works. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Send your questions to KenTheContractor.com or call 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jabrit along with Ken. Ken is here weekends at this time taking your calls, questions, and comments. You can email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. Time now for our Universal Living segment. And this week, Ken, it deals with something we had a lot of questions about, ceiling fans. We love our remote controls, and there's nothing wrong with adding one more remote in the house, and that is to retrofit your ceiling fan. Now, if you live in a home that has several years on it and have ceiling fans, you probably do not have a remote, but there are numerous manufacturers producing aftermarket retrofits for those ceiling fans. And this is the, the way this falls into universal living, obviously, is it not only is convenient for everybody, but especially those that may have some physical disabilities that can't reach that pull chain to turn the light on or to turn the fan on or to reverse it. This makes it work for absolutely everybody. It clearly is a universal function within your household. It's convenient for all. It meets ADA criteria. Uh, the fans without existing remotes can have retrofit that handles several things. One, it can turn your light off or on. It can control not only the off-on side of the fan. It can control the speed of the fan and whether it's going forward or reverse. So if you're in the market to buy one of these, you need to pay attention because the price point tends to tell you a little something. The cheaper ones are going to be basic off-on functions, the more expensive ones, and that'll get up around $100 in most cases, will do multiple functions. Most of these are fairly easy to tie into the switch box if there is one already going to the fan and you turn the power on there and then pull the chains to do the other uh, functions. But read the instructions. Also, be sure you know what the brand of fan you have is and what you're purchasing the control for because not all controls are compatible with every fan. So some very basic things today for universal living. Pass that remote control around. Have a great time. It's for everybody. I'll tell you. Uh, 
I've become such a big fan of ceiling fans in the last couple of years. They make a difference. They really do. They really make an appreciable difference. And if you don't have any, you ought to investigate and look at putting some in. Well, they're energy savers. That was the, that's how they hit the market big time in, in the energy crisis back during the 70s. We're going to go to the phones right now. Our number is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Joining us next is Barb. Hi, Barb. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. We got our electric bill, and it was like $217 more than it had been the previous uh, month. So we called the electric people, and they just said they're reading. They go by their reading, and that was it, that we needed to get either, you know, like the heat, our electrical unit, and the water pump. So we had those checked. We had the guy who installed that heating unit to come, and he said that it was okay. And she said she would send somebody out, though, to check. She sent somebody out to check, and he said that, when the heat is off, that the little meter just goes really slow, but as soon as the heat comes on, it goes like crazy. So he said, it must be the heating unit. So we had that guy come back, and he checked it again, and he said, there's nothing wrong with it. And short of you referring me to an electrician, which probably will be, he, he kind of claims to be, we, we just don't know what to do. I mean, we're just sitting here letting money go out. Put it down on 68, it cuts off and on and everything. It's just that it makes the meter go wild. All right. What This is a heat pump system, correct? It's not a heat pump. It is it's not. It's an electrical unit. Okay. So, unit. so it's a straight electric resistance unit. Right. The only thing that I can think of, again, would be some type of a contactor within the unit. Most electric-resistant heat furnaces will have multiple stages in it. And and typically you only operate on one unless you have a, a huge difference that you're calling for between your temperature inside and what you want to satisfy the thermostat. So if you turned it up five, six, seven degrees, that second stage would probably come in at the same time. So the only thing else I can think of is what's happening is that when it does come on ordinarily, both stages are coming on instead of doing first stage and rarely the second stage because you're saying that this power bill is substantially increased over what it normally is. Yeah, in the past month. I'm going to suggest you do two things. One, first call your air conditioning service person that was out and that actually checked this. Call them one more time. Ask them very specifically, did they check? both stages of the heat, were they certain that only one stage came on? The first stage is all that should come on for your ordinary heating. And you have some interconnecting devices within the unit that could malfunction. Also, your thermostat could have a malfunction in it. It may not be just your electrical. I mentioned the thermostat, and they just kind of brushed me off. I'm a female. Can I... Tell them you talked to Ken, the contractor. I am. This is something that at least needs to be questioned and it needs to be explored as an option because if the unit's working, it's putting out heat, they're telling you that they don't find anything obviously wrong with it, I would be looking at some internal items, and it's going to get back to the controls, I think. But I don't okay. typically see anything that will go wrong with the electrical service, meaning or the electrical meter, that's going right. to show a sudden rise, a substantial rise from one month to the next. The other thing I would suggest you do, if you save your, your power bills from whoever your service provider is, go back and look at your usage, your kilowatt hours from the same yeah, time. Looked. Actually, I looked uh, last okay. November, and it, it actually only went up five. Five kilowatt, kilowatt hours. hours. 
It went from 70 to 75, which is not significant. No, but then you also need to look at your use, uh, your rate. See how that rate has been adjusted, because with all of the state and federal taxes, special use fees, fuel charges, all the price increases. Well, the rate went up in um, July, but they said that it wasn't significant enough that it should do that. Well, it'll be identified on your invoice, though. Okay. So you can actually sit and see what your cost is per kilowatt hour. What were you paying per kilowatt hour for for energy cost November of the prior year? What was it this year? Because oh, five okay. kilo five kilowatt hours should not be enough to increase your bill significantly. So that tells me you may be looking at a very substantial rate increase and you may not have realized it. Okay. So there but may not be anything else like wrong. That the meter will just go like that when it isn't on, and then when it's turned on, it makes sense that it would speed up some. Oh, absolutely. Right. It, it, it's going to. When you have straight electric resistance heat, that meter is going to sail around and around at a pretty good clip. Oh, it does? It does. Okay. It, the meter is going to move around at a pretty good clip. Your issue may well be that there has been a rate increase come through. If you don't have central air conditioning, this time of year is probably the first time you may have really noticed that rate increase difference because now your energy consumption is That's up. That's true. So my guess is now that you've explained all that, that you're really seeing the first impact of a rate increase. Okay. Check that first. Okay. You're... You're, you're probably, I think you've probably figured it out on your own just thinking about the bills. Check the bill first. If you find that it's not because of rate increases from one year to the next, if your kilowatt hours are only five apart and you've been told the system works, then chances are pretty good it's in the billing. But if you determine that, hey, I, I'm within a few cents per kill, I mean a penny or two or a penny and a half or whatever per kilowatt hour cost that I was last year, then I think you have to go back and look at the efficiency of the you equipment. Think you're leaning more toward the billing process. No, I'm just saying I would check that first. That's quick and easy. Okay. And if you find that the rate has actually gone up, the total gross rate is substantially increased over the same time last year, then I would say that's probably your, your issue. If it has not increased substantially, then I would be looking at something within the control side of the furnace that may be okay. causing both stages to engage at the same time okay. rather than one. Right. Or the thermostat. That's where I would go with it. Lastly, and this is very remote. I have seen it happen, but it's extremely remote. There could be a problem with a meter. It is so rare. They came. They came from HEC, two engineers, and checked the meter. And it is extremely rare to have a meter problem. Okay. But take, take those steps, and I think you'll get to the bottom of it. Well, thank you very much. You're very smart. Thanks so much, and we appreciate you listening to the show. Uh, you're welcome. Barb, good luck with that. Boy, I'd be hollering to somebody. Uh, we've got to take a break. We'll come back. Don't forget, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or forward your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. All questions that are forwarded to the website do get an answer. And then Ken pulls some of the more interesting ones out, and we bring those to the radio each week. And you've got one right now that you want to make a specific point about uh, paint, because we, we've gotten some different inquiries about this. I do, and you have to pay close attention to the type of paint, whether it's oil-based or latex, and whether it's a primer or a paint, 
when I address these questions, whether it's through the mailbag or on the air. Now, this one comes to us from Andrew out of Washington, D.C., and he says, I'm purchasing an apartment that I will lease out for additional income. It was built in the 1950s, and I'm sure the paint contains lead. And being built in the 50s, unless somebody's removed it, Andrew, you're probably right on track with that. said, all the trim is pretty shiny, I guess a high-gloss paint. Uh, The place is in pretty good shape, just needs painting and some new carpet, and I'll do the painting myself. Is there any problem with putting a latex paint over the old oil-based paint? Now, I want everybody to pay attention to his question. He wants to put latex over an oil-based paint, not an oil-based primer. said, do I need to have the lead paint removed first, and I need a little direction to get this started? Well, first off, there's a clear distinction. I have talked recently on this program. We had another caller uh, not too long ago call about wanting to apply a primer over paneling before he paints. Oil base primer will seal things that water based primers do not. So an oil based bonding primer can be used and a water based paint will go over that primer. So in your case, Andrew, you have something that's a little more difficult to deal with. You have two elements here. One, you have an oil-based paint, the finished product. Latex paint will not bond directly to an oil-based paint without you doing some special work, and that has to do with sanding it down. You need to rough the surface up, get the sheen off of it, and then you'll you'll need to use a finer sandpaper ultimately to get it to where it will bond, and then you still need to go over it with a bonding primer before you put your finished coat on top of that, and then it will perform well. The paint will adhere long enough to dry, and it will stay there, but what happens if you've never tried this, just so you all say, wonder what happens, you can take your thumbnail and scratch the paint right off of your door, your jam, whatever it may be when you're going over an oil-based paint. So if you do the prep work right, you'll find it works okay. But the second element you're dealing with, Andrew, is you're telling me you're pretty satisfied this has lead in the paint. It's old paint that's on there. And if that's the case, then you need to go and you go to my website, kenthecontractor.com, and uh, follow the links, follow the instructions for properly working with lead-based paint. And this is put out through the Environmental Protection Agency. I have the link on my website that will give you detailed instructions for homeowners to do their own painting and how to be safe in dealing with that. So I want to caution everybody about that. The bottom line is you can do this yourself. If you're satisfied you have lead-based paint, take all the precautions, one, to uh, first get it to bond, either use an oil-based paint to go over it again. You have none of these issues whatsoever. The new oil-based paints do not contain lead. It will encapsulate what's there, and it will bond oil over oil. Or if you want to go to the latex, then you're going to have to go through these extra steps, and you're going to have to deal with the airborne material from sanding the old paint, wearing proper respirators and uh, dust-proofing rooms, turning off AC units, those type things. But you can do it yourself. Andrew, good luck with that project. Got a lot of work on your hands. All right, uh, time for our handy website of the week. And uh, this one allows you to do a little bit of research before you make a purchase. And I encourage everybody to do research. I do a fair amount of that when I'm buying products, when I'm looking for uh, particular products that customers may ask about we need to incorporate in projects. And this one is called ConsumerSearch.com. It's a 
a website. It's not an app. ConsumerSearch.com. And it's a website of more than 300 product reviews. They consolidate and analyze comments from experts such as Consumer Reports. And a lot of us go to Consumer Reports. But what this site has done is take the feedback from Consumer Reports and other locations like CNET.com, plus they incorporate comments that have been posted on the Internet on what we like and what we dislike about a particular product. They put all that in sort of a synopsis, and they review this. So you have the benefit of, if you will, several websites or feedback from blogs all in one spot, and that is called ConsumerSearch.com. And you'll find items that deal with health and beauty, electronics, computers, kitchen and food, family and pets, particular services, um, automotive, and so much more. So if you're out there looking to buy any products, you're doing a little research, check them out. And again, the website? ConsumerSearch.com. All right, let's go to the phones. We were talking about light bulbs earlier. Rose has some comments on that. Hi, Rose, you're on the air with Ken. Thank you. Uh, yes, you were talking about these uh, new light bulbs and so forth, and like the incandescent, we won't be able to get any more. But aren't the new ones, uh, don't they have to have a special disposal Thing? Only some. Now, the compact fluorescents, better known as CFLs in the industry, uh, need, like any fluorescent, needs to be properly disposed of, meaning you can go to recycling centers. Some of them contain mercury, and, and that's what makes them harmful if you're just throwing them in the landfill. Too many of those create problems over time. So yeah. if you read the warning on the package, they'll tell you to take them to a recycling center, and most places that do this are absolutely free. It's just a place you can drop them off rather than throw them in the landfill. But others like the LEDs and the halogens don't have the same kind of safety problems that the CFLs do. And I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing a trend towards the, the LEDs. They're all, they're a brighter light. They warm up. I mean, the, the light is instantly on. And when I look at the numbers around the country, the CFLs, the popularity of those tend to be waning a little bit in favor of some of the others, even though the CFLs can be more cost-effective. I mean, they cost you less to buy on the front side. But that tends to be some of the trends. But you're absolutely right. Good point to bring up for any of you, especially if you have the older CFLs, and some people call them the little pigtail uh, bulbs that are screwed in lamps. Uh, yeah. You don't want to just dump them in the trash, or um, be sure you don't want to be sure they end up in a landfill. You want to take them to a proper recycling center. Okay. Well, if you have one of those new kind of curly uh, bulbs, does it say on it that it's CFL? Because I really don't know. Well, We've that's what it, that's really what it is. It, the CFL stands for a compact fluorescent light, uh-huh. and they're going to have a broad base on the bottom, yeah. and and that's a ballast that's built into it. It's an electronic ballast because what it's doing is heating the gas within, or there's a charge that runs through the gas in that light that creates the illumination. And that's why, if you've noticed it also, it may take, in a warm environment, it may take just a matter of a few seconds. In a colder environment, it takes a little bit for many of these, especially the older ones, to come up to the full lighting yeah, level. Yeah. They're slow. But yeah, that's it why. It doesn't even come on right away. I don't like it. No, and I, and I think Jim and I have talked about those. We've got some in our homes and others, but the earlier versions don't perform as well as they do today. They've okay. done a good they've done a good job in the last few years of perfecting the CFL. So I wouldn't discourage you if you like those, but they are different no. today than they were four or five years ago. I can tell yeah. you, Rose, what uh, someone told me recently is what they're doing is they're going out and not buying those huge packages. They're going out and buying one or two and placing them in their homes and trying to find the ones they like best before they buy a bunch of them. You know, when they were when they were forty cents, it didn't matter. If you bought a dozen, but now that you're paying five, six, seven, eight dollars a piece, it makes a lot of difference. Yeah. 
Well, now, what did, what did you say about they are no longer making 100-watt or whatever? Well, the 100-watt bulb, of a court, by the federal government standards, disappeared two years ago. The 75s disappeared last year. They're no longer manufactured. Inventories can be depleted, but they can't be made. And the, the uh, 40s, the 60s and the 40s go away by the end of 2014. Rose, thank you. I do appreciate your call. We are just out of time for this hour. Don't forget, if you want to reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975, or you can email questions to our website, kenthecontractor.com. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us this hour right here. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.